It's time for another episode of Floods of Justice, and I am really looking forward to this. I enjoyed the discussion I had. My guest today is Bishop Todd Hunter. Uh, Bishop Hunter is a relatively new friend of mine. We met a few months back at, a, at just a gathering of some local pastors, and, and I think um, we share the same heart and passion for ministry, and especially uh, people who are on the margins, and, uh, and so I'm looking forward to this discussion. And really, all it is is a discussion. We talk about a lot of different issues. There's not really a theme. We just talk. It's like two friends sitting down over a cup of coffee and just talking about issues, and, uh, but I think you'll enjoy it. We cover a lot of ground and talk about a lot of different subjects, and I'll need to have him on again where we can maybe focus in on one of the subjects that we've talked about. Um, but Bishop Hunter uh, has expressed his Kingdom Spirit Formation Church culture focus in various settings. Uh, he is the founding bishop of the Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others, a part of the Anglican Church in North America. Uh, bishop Hunter is past president of Alpha USA. He's the former national director for the Association of Vineyard Churches and a retired founding pastor of Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Costa Mesa, California. He has also written several books, which include Christianity Beyond Belief, Following Jesus for the Sake of Others, Giving Church Another Chance, The Outsider Interviews, The Accidental Anglican, Our Favorite Sins, and Our Character at Work. Uh, presently, he is the founder and director for the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace. And that's where you can find him. You can just Google that, Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace, to see what kind of work he's doing, uh, as well as you can find uh, more personal information of him at toddhunter.org. And so, um, again, I'm just looking forward to this, uh, sharing it with you. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope that uh, you find something in it that you find worthwhile and that you'd be willing to share with other people. So please share this podcast and on, and on the Apple podcast, leave us a review. Those things are very important to us. So welcome my friend, Bishop Todd Hunter. If you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter five. And I want to read verse 24 where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev, he is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the Coffee House at Second and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, good to be back with you. And um, I hope that as you watch this, if you're watching it live, if you've got any questions about what we're talking about, just uh, type them uh, in the comments and hopefully I will look and try to keep up with it. Uh, but if not, this is if you've watched before, you know what's going on. This is a live recording of, of Floods of Justice. And then um, I'll take it afterwards and edit it and put it on our actual Floods of Justice podcast from that. But I'm privileged today uh, to have a, a good friend. He's, he's really a new friend. We met not too long ago through some mutual friends and uh, have spent some time together. And I'm looking forward to this discussion today. And so with me today is um, Bishop Todd Hunter. Um, and uh, most recently, he is the founder of the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace, 
but he's also the founding bishop of the diocese of the church of I'm trying to read this of churches for the sake of others and was the founding pastor of Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Costa Mesa, California. He's also the past president of Alpha USA and former national director of the Association of Vineyard Churches. And so just as I read that, uh, Todd, it's like <laughs> you've had quite a variety of things uh, in, your, in your career. And then in addition, before, you, before I let you introduce yourself, let me finish with this. He has authored a number of books. Um, one is called Christianity Beyond Belief. Another one is Giving Church Another Chance. And then The Outsider Interviews, The Accidental Anglican, which is an interesting title, and Our Favorite Sins. I don't like that title. <laughs> it's getting too personal. And then Our Character at Work, and then most recently, Deep Peace. And so, um, Bishop Hunter, it's good to have you with us today. And you can tell me how you want me to address you, but... Uh, but just to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe fill in some of the gaps of that uh, biography. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Great to be with you. And it has been good to become your friend. So, uh, but I would say, actually, you're, you're a hero to me, not just a friend. I, um, I can't tell you how much I admire you and um, the way you're investing your life on behalf of others. It's great. <clears throat> so uh, yeah, so Kevin got to know each other, and I got to know each other locally here in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, I moved here about two and a half years ago from Southern California. Along, I, I guess everybody, all the all the old locals like Kevin, tell me there's an avalanche of Californians and <laughs> New Yorkers and people moving to Middle Tennessee here, especially around Nashville. So Kevin, and you, and I you know, when, let me tell you this Nashville's real quick. Conference. When I first moved here in '89, I was born and raised in Nashville. But when I first moved to Franklin in 1989, I was not a local. I mean, I, I was not I was an outsider. But now well, that means I got no hope. <laughs> but now, if I tell people I'm from Nashville, it's like, oh, you're a local. You're one of us. And so things have yeah. changed in, in, a, in this period of time. But go ahead. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, so I was converted in the Jesus movement, uh, if uh, our listeners know anything about that, in Southern California in uh, 1976. And um, had a passion for evangelism that, you know, as a 19-year-old kid, you know, I thought it would be great to be the next Billy Graham. And I didn't so much have in, in mind his fame, but that effect of, you know, standing on stage and calling people to Christ and hundreds, thousands of people coming to Christ. It just seemed to me not only the coolest thing ever, but like, oh, I guess that's what Christians do. <laughs> And so I gave my hand at doing crusade evangelism and I was okay at it, but I quickly realized I was not going to be the next Billy Graham. So I've really spent most of my life expressing my evangelistic passion through planting churches um, that would help reach the lost and disciple people. So again, you'll see some of my evangelistic passion coming out in those years that I was the director of the Alpha Course, which is a church-based yeah. um, approach to evangelism. And then I think as Kevin and I, I'm really uh, coming forward now to the present, that I met Kevin because I was looking for a model. I was looking for somebody ahead of me. I was looking for somebody who had worked some of these things out. And what I mean by some of these things is that as I look back in my journals over the last three years or so, I've been praying, Lord, can the last part of my life please has have something to do with justice? And I didn't know what it meant exactly. I just knew I had a longing for it. 
sometimes I would imagine helping children with literacy and poverty issues. Other times I would imagine things like immigration or incarceration or things like that. But I, I had no idea what it meant. It was just a longing in my heart. And uh, uh, obviously um, right smack in the middle of that would have been race issues. And I often tell the story, Kevin, that I don't know why it took me so long for my eyes to be open to this. If I'm being honest with your audience, I sometimes feel shame about it. And I have people trying to help me get past that shame because you can't do good work long-term out of shame. You have to find some more positive, you know, mojo behind what you're doing. And, and what I mean by that is I, I grew up in Santa Ana, California, which is a majority, majority Hispanic city. It's probably 80% Hispanic now. And when I was a kid, it was at least 50%. So I went to essentially a Hispanic high school. My best friend was Mike Gonzalez. If you <clears throat> look at my little league pictures, I'm about the only white kid on the team. So I would have never dreamed I had any issue with race. And then I happened to have been a good baseball player and played baseball in college and, you know, played on, you know, really sort of high level summer teams. And which meant that I was around a lot of elite black athletes all the time. And they were my favorite people. Some of my most joyous moments in college was when the black kids used to tease us by uh, doing surfer speak, you know, and taking on, you know, these black urban kids taking on a surfer dialect and, you know, teasing us. And, oh my God, we would all laugh till we cried. It was hysterical. <laughs> so again, why do I have a, I don't, I don't have a race issue or race isn't an issue, is it? And um I, so I lived through the Watts riots. I was only about 10 or 12, but I'm 12, I guess. But I remember asking my dad about it. I certainly lived through Rodney King and OJ Simpson and all that. And again, I, I don't know, race. It just, I, I, I just didn't see it. It's not that I didn't want to see it. I wasn't trying not to see it. But at race and all the issues that cohere around race, had uh, I hadn't seen it. And I think I told you, Kevin, maybe the first time we met that, but man, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that's what brought me to starting this, the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace. Well, so, I mean, I know you got other, um, other um, things that you work on at the Center for Justice and Peace, but would you say that, that racial issues are really at the heart of it and, and uh, maybe get more emphasis in other things? Yeah, they are right now. And um, that's largely because <clears throat> one of the people who's helping us uh, lead in the creation of this content is a, a, a new friend of mine, Dr. Greg Thompson, um, who is a genuine expert on race, genuine expert on probably one of the nation's leading experts on Martin Luther King Jr. He wrote a book recently with Duke Kwan on reparations. Mm -hmm. um, and he's really helping us into this. We have a not just, I hope not just diverse, but really fully inclusive board of advisors that includes men and women of, of uh, color. Um, one of the whole goals, I don't know if I've told you this, Kevin, but in the months since I've seen you that what's come clear is one of the whole goals of this, of uh, the center is to center voices of color. Yeah. So even right now on almost any topic I read, I'm trying to read um, voices of color. Yeah. first or centrally and yeah. not in a cheesy sort of representational way like to me this isn't about identity politics it's like if you think of howard thurman and jesus and the dispossessed he's a genius mm -hmm. it's not about reading token like read a token black guy thurman is a genius yeah. and i've now read thousands of pages about and by 
Martin Luther King Jr. And he's a genius. I mean, yes, was he the moral conscious of the civil rights movement, of course, and prophetic and all that, of course. But anybody who reads him and takes him serious, like he understood global politics, he understood economy, he understood war, he understood philosophy, he understood theology, he understood race, you know, as sort of a philosophical construct. He was a genius. So I don't read black people as a kind of tokenism or to somehow show I'm woke or something. I'm just discovering that there's something, especially in the historic black church that white people need to learn from. I mean, my God, how does somebody stay a Christian when they're being chained and raped and children abused and family separated and somehow these black communities held on to a faith in God? To me, it's like reading stories from the Bible. I mean, the faith is so heroic and strong and clear that I'm moved by it. It's just so you see what I mean? It's not like me trying to be cool or get with things. I'm like literally moved by the Black authors I read. Yeah, and, and I'm with you on that. You know, I mean, um, growing up in, a, in the dominant culture that I grew up in and, and also yeah. with a very, very conservative theological background, um, you know, it was, you, you didn't really read anything from, um, any type of minority author, uh, but African-American, right. sure. I mean, I'm, you know, I've had some, um, tough discussions with people in my denomination, older people who I respect and, but, but ask them, you know, where was our denomination, uh, during the civil rights movement? And, uh, unfortunately, um, our denomination, or at least some of the people in our denomination, not only were they just not quiet during that time, but they would have actively opposed um, Dr. King and, uh, and and what he and what he was doing, um, which was, you know, which which is really horrible to say, um, but that's yeah. just kind of uh, the the way it was. We were on the wrong side of that um, of that issue, which is really odd. In, in my denomination, for those who don't know, it's the National Association of Free World Baptists. It's really kind of odd because in our history, um, the uh, the Free Will Baptist movement in the Northeast were abolitionist and mm. started schools um, for African Americans and, and you know free and slaved, and uh, yeah. so they have a the northern uh, part of our denomination has a very very strong good track record of um, of anti-slavery things. But in 1912. Um, there was a split in our denomination, and that northern movement went, joined the north, the the uh, north bad, the northern Baptist, mm. and then um, the southern movement was kind of just flounder with a lot of associations, and then in the 1940s came together as a denomination, uh, mm. and and the southern movement was very much steeped in slavery, and um, and really just just racism, and and that's really more the core. Uh, that I came I came up on but as a, as a kid not really knowing that I mean because again um, I had minority friends and I know that sounds horrible when you really say things like that but I played basketball I was pretty good and so I spent you know as soon as I got my driver's license during the summer I would go to the inner city different playgrounds and just because that's what, just just to play basketball and I would be the only white mm -hmm. uh, white kid around and so I never I never um, it, you know thought I had any type of racial issue uh, but then as you grow older and start reading and you realize that that all of us have been racialized and it may not have been overt mm -hmm. racism, but just a product of your environment growing up. Right. You know, you would uh, you tend to see things 
uh, that you that you wish you didn't see. And then and then when, when as you said, once you make that change and once you start seeing racism, uh, you can't unsee it. Then 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 you see it everywhere. And for me, it really starts. And I tell people this, um, that, it, you know, you can't really talk to a person in the dominant group uh, about racial issues if they do not admit uh, white privilege. Uh, that's got to be the for you got to admit that okay you may not have been a racist you, your your ancestors may not have owned slaves but you have benefited from that um, right. for no other reason than the color of your skin there's a benefit to that and mm-hmm. and I think once um, a white person admits that now you can start really having a dialogue and and you're open to learning more and uh, and I'm like I remember start when I started reading um, theologians who were African American you know, then then your eyes really start opening up um, about what's uh, what's going on. So uh, and then in church history, this is what baffles me. I know we're way off subject, but we didn't really have a subject today. So that's right. We but, don't have a subject. Yeah. But in church history, of course, Jesus was a person of color. Um, how right. dark he was. Who knows? I mean, he was Middle Eastern, but apparently he had families in Egypt, which is part of Africa. So but he was not white European for sure. Uh, but you right. bring that up in, tr- in your white church, see, see how far that goes, you know, show a picture of a <laughs> yeah. black Jesus in your white church and see and see the type of response you get. But then, you know, the early the early history of the church, I mean, the key theologian, St. Augustine, um, not and he was from Africa, but not just Africa, mm-hmm. but Hippo, which is North Africa, um, right. which is, um, you know, no- North Africans are uh, they have a very dark skin. Uh, from that and so our greatest star our savior was a person of color our greatest theologian was without a doubt a black uh, a black person mm-hmm. um and then you know there's no europeans mentioned in in the bible whatsoever they're they're, they're all mm-hmm. uh, what we yeah. would consider people of color but yet somehow or another and i know the history of it somehow or another now we become a you know christianity at least in the west became a white uh, religion and, right. and most everything you read is from a white perspective. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there is, and, and in reality, you know, maybe the dominant, what we, the most what we should read should, should come from the black community because I think they're closer in touch with what, uh, uh, building a theology out of suffering and from the, um, uh, from the, uh, from underneath the power structure of society instead of in white theology so yeah. much it's from, the top you know, white theology is kind right. of top down black theology is from right. the bottom up and yeah. uh, and that bottom up is is extremely important yeah absolutely there's just a different tone to it like my friend Esau Macaulay he's a professor at Wheaton and one of my canon theologians he wrote a book recently I can't remember Kevin if you've seen it it's called reading while, yeah, reading black. while black yeah yeah and I, the subtitle I think is an exercise in hope I feel like I'm forgetting a word though well, what I'll never forget from reading Esau's book is what I kind of mentioned already. How did generations of Black people remain hopeful? Mm-hmm. And so again, if you want to learn about hope, you know, like if you don't want to just look up hope in a concordance, you know, and and read a bunch of dictionary definitions about hope, but if you want to actually learn about the lived experience of hope, well, who better to learn it from? than the black community who remained hopeful through hundreds of years of being dispossessed. I mean, that's what I mean. It's not cheesy. It's, it's brilliant. It's not surfacy. It's not, 
posturing. It's not, what's the word these days, virtue signaling. Once you get past that and you see the genuine genius that is in the historic black church, it's amazing. Now, I don't mean to say there's not smart things in the white church as well. Like I still appreciate um, uh, uh, like Jim Packer, John Stott, uh, you know, Tom Wright. These are all Anglican people. Leslie Newbegin's one of my favorite missiologists. We can go on and on. I appreciate Tim Keller, you know. So it's not that you suddenly cannot um, appreciate white voices or Hispanic voices like Oscar Romero and others. It's just, it's, but, but the Black community somehow, as you said, got excluded. Yeah. And once you include it and see the genius, it's, it's like the opposite of, it's not that you see racism when you might not have seen it before, but you also see um, the spiritual brilliance that there is in the historic black church. Yeah, I like, I like that. And of course, you know, if, a good place to start if you've never done this and you consider yourself a white evangelical is uh, Crossing the Lynching Tree. Um, right. With James Cone. That's, James that's later yeah. book. If you read his earlier books first, you may, you know, you may get upset. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, black theology, you need to read them. But if you started yeah. with the Cross and the Lynching Tree, which was written later in his life, where he basically says the, 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 um, uh, the slave saw themselves um, and Jesus being lynched because they could relate to that. Yes. So if if, right. if God allowed His Son to be lynched, then uh, there, there's a connection there. When when um, when we are being beaten and we are being suffering and we are suffering yeah, and we right. are being lynched, and so that mm-hmm. that that connection that they saw in Jesus um, hanging from a tree basically is is uh, was a powerful um, thing for the for the African American slave to. Uh, to yeah. and plus, I think there's been more and more research that has shown that um, a lot of the, you know, and this is even horrible for me to say, but a lot of the um, Africans when they came over here um, from um, from Africa on the slave ships, they weren't pagans. Uh, they had a belief in God, and they and and they and they had Christianity at least some of them with them because the early church would have would have gone into Africa pretty soon after Christ. Right. And so it wasn't like they came here with no idea about God and um, and Christianity. Uh, and so when they got here, they were able to um, adapt more or less. But really, you know, I think that, and I've, I've said this to African American pastors, the uh, the, Af- the African American Church is going to be the savior of Christianity in the United States. Uh, really, I mean, you know, because the evangelical church has gone yeah. off track, from my opinion. Uh, we because of nationalism and and their overwhelming support of um, of Trump and um, but yet the African American Church has has kind of always been there. Um, mm-hmm. Their faith hasn't wavered, and um, and 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 really that's what's going to not just the African American but all the minority churches, but but in particular yeah. I think the African American Church is what will end up saving Christianity in the United States. Yeah. Well, like you said, we didn't have an agenda when we got on and, you know, we didn't know we'd go this far down the race trail. But since we have, uh, you you used a term uh, a minute ago, you know, white centeredness or white privilege, that sort of thing. Um, and yes, I know those are very scary words. And it's heartbreaking to me because they actually mean something. But again, when um, lots of white people hear it, they either have a uh, like an instinctual rejection of it 
or it triggers shame as I talked about, like with myself. And so there's no way of having like a positive engagement with it. But I would like to suggest something to our listeners. Yesterday, I happened to have to go to the dentist for my cleaning. And, you know, when the dentist looks in your mouth as she did yesterday and says, oh, Mr. Hunter, you have a cavity on your number 14 or 32 or whatever it is. Well, she's not being judgmental. And now she might be, she might be thinking in her heart, what a jerk, you ought to brush your teeth more, floss more, maybe. But all she said to me was an observation. Mr. Hunter, you have a small cavity here and we should deal with it, you know, next time you come. Well, I think if we could have that sort of heart of what's trying to be said in words like whiteness or white centeredness or white privilege. And, and if you, if you just feel confused or upset by, you know, sort of MSNBC's view of it versus Fox's view of it, I would say step outside of that and go ask 20 black people, just have coffee with 20 black people and say, how do you understand this? What's trying to be said here? Can you help me understand this? Because I just knee jerk, hate it. Um, you know, it bugs me or whatever's true about anybody. But I think if we're going to unlock, I think the key, to, I, I'm agreeing with you that a key to unlocking a lot of racism is to understand um, the white part of that. And that's all these thinkers are trying to do. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to help us understand, in a sense, Kevin, global history since colonialism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, uh, again, I'm not expert on this. And I don't want to get too far down the track, yeah. but you know, yeah, when it's, white it's really never a good settlers, just, it's really never a good idea for just two white people to sit here and talk about this. We should, if we didn't know, we're going to <laughs> I this know. Direction, I'd have brought in. I know. Okay. Last comment. We'll move on. <laughs> but there's a sense in which, or another phrase that I think I might've picked up from Willie James Jennings, maybe it was Cone. I can't remember, was the notion of white normalcy or the standardness of whiteness. So that when European settlers went to Africa, it was the Africans or wherever, Asia, Latin America, who were odd or weird. And so then whiteness becomes the norm. So again, I, I just wish we could get curious. I'm not saying that every racial theory is right, but can't we just be mutually curious about what's going on here? And I think the best way to be curious is, like I said, go interview 20 Black people and just hear them, hear, you know, listen to their heart, open your heart and listen to them is probably the best thing most of us can do. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think opening your heart is good. And, and, you know, this is, this is going to be a lifelong process um, yeah. for all of us to learn. Um, and, um, and, you know, white privilege is really seen. And when the conversation around racism gets uncomfortable, um, you mm-hmm. know, I can take my ball and go home. I don't have to talk about it anymore. Uh, whereas right. a minority person can never get away from it. Uh, they, right. they can't just say, well, no, I'm just not going to talk about it anymore. You know, whereas right. uh, in the dominant culture, you can decide I'm just not going to deal with it anymore and go back um, to my normal white yeah. normalcy to my normal life and not deal with this anymore. And it's not really going to affect how I, uh, how I live my life or my job opportunities and, and, and all right. of that, which is really where the, yeah. where the privilege is seen. 
Um, and so, you know, I just challenge people to sit with the uncomfortableness. If something's said that makes you feel uncomfortable, sit with it a while and think it through and ask, why, is it, why am I uncomfortable? And just uh, right. wrestle with that's it. Don't counsel. Yeah. Don't in a hurry just say, well, that's it. I'm never talking about that again. No, sit, sit with yeah. it a little bit. Um, and uh, but anyway, uh, back to let's talk about justice then. I mean, that's just a part of it. Uh, but, you know, I think you and I both know coming from um, a more conservative evangelical background, and I would consider the Vineyard Church in that camp uh, mm-hmm, of yes. uh, on the conservative side, um, you know, <laughs> social justice or just any talk of justice was seen as, um, as, as man, you're, you're not believing the Bible anymore. You're getting liberal. Yeah. You know, so, mm-hmm. so just yeah. talk. I mean, what when you when you hear social justice now or justice, what what do you mean by that? And, and uh, yeah, you know, well, I was a young boy uh, during the um, the time when the mainline church was, you know, quote going liberal. Mm-hmm. You know, in the '60s, I would have been an adolescent, you know, young teenager, um, and I went to what you might think of as a stereotypically liberal United Methodist church. And, and so the, one of the tragedies to me, Kevin, is that there's a, there's a horrible historical accident that shouldn't matter, but it dominates everything. And that's this, that post-World War II into the early 50s and into the 60s, liberalism, which was mostly coming from German higher criticism, and sorry for those of you who haven't gone to seminary, I'm going to make this short. There was just a movement in the uh, Western world towards, let's call it, I don't know, cynicism seems too strong. Um, um, there was, a, it was just, it was called higher criticism where people were criticized. They were, what criticism means is they were critiquing the Bible, the stories of the Bible, the way, the way the Bible came to be, its reliability, therefore, which words of Jesus were really his, did the miracles really happen, the resurrection, et cetera. Well, when you, when uh, today, the word that's used to talk about that is, is sometimes deconstruction. And, I, and I'm not equating the two. I'm just trying to help people understand, basically. Um, but when the liberal church finally got done with, there's nothing really much real in the Bible, and Jesus probably really isn't God, and he didn't rise from the dead. Well, when you're done with that, what's left? Only the ethical teachings. And so liberals picked up what we now call social justice. And so now you're right. If, if, if in a lot of evangelical spaces, you talk about caring about justice, or especially if you put the word social in front of it, oh yeah, you're immediately not just a liberal, but perhaps a Marxist, a communist, woke, progressive, you know, all these pejorative terms um, just for caring about it. And that to me, Kevin, is just a really tragic mm-hmm. historical anomaly. Yeah, and I agree with you. Now, now, of course, all those things, Marxist, communist, the, the the very worst thing you can be called as a conservative evangelical is Democrat above all those other things. And that's what you're <laughs> that's right. you know, very, very yeah. quickly uh, assumed. And um, yeah, and so for me, again, growing up the way that I did, um, reaching kind of a, um, a critical point in my ministry after being a pastor for 15 years or so um, and questioning you know, what's really real, what's really going on. So I guess I don't know if that's called deconstruction or not, but, um, but I heard God say, you need to study the kingdom of God. And I'd read books about the kingdom of God and and all of that, but I, but I really heard you need to study the kingdom of God. And so, 
And so really that, that's what I did and kind of did a deep dive in that. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, basically to me, the kingdom of God, there's a very, very close relationship between the kingdom of God and justice and, and social yes. justice. That's really what he's talking yes. about. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, then just kind of from that, then your eyes start kind of like once you see it, you can't unsee it. You see all the Old Testament passages about caring for right. uh, the widow and yeah. the orphan and the immigrant and, and the poor. And then you read Jesus's right. um, uh, parable, the sheep and the goats, where to that list, he adds mm-hmm. the prisoner and the sick um, and, uh, right. and the homeless, basically, and and the hungry. And and then you read Acts where, um, you know, where, where the book of Acts says that in the early church, there was no poor among them you know mm-hmm. and that really the the persecution of the early christians started because they were doing social work they were taking care you know it's kind of a caste system so so that but they yeah. they were breaking the norms and caring for the sick and caring for the uh, for the aged and caring for the prisoner and doing all those things and making the government look bad and and so in a sense that was kind of the roots of even the um the persecution started and of course it it came full time when Nero burnt down Rome and blamed it on the Christians. But, right. but there was a part of these people are doing things that you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to take care of the poor. You're not, you know, they're poor for a reason. They're right. sick for a reason. And, yeah. But, but God had called these people to go and to step into those, those tough places. So then once I saw that, then it's like, well, now there's justice injustices all around us. And, and so something's right. got to be done, be it, uh, be it racially, be it uh, affordable housing, you know, man, the Old Testament says a whole lot about livable wage and gets on to the nation of yeah. Israel because you're not paying your people uh, what they deserve, right. um, you know, mm-hmm. and so all, but yet, but yet in the church, um, if you bring those up in a sermon, even if it's from the prophet, you know, yeah. um, all of a sudden, man, you're getting too political, you're getting too, yeah. um, and it's like, no, I know, re- and I tell people the reason that all this changed in me is because God told me to study something. I studied the word. And the one thing I take from my upbringing is that the Bible is true. <laughs> you know? yeah. And mm-hmm. if the Bible says yeah. it, that settles it kind of thing. And so yeah. now, right. Oh, yeah. this is, this is, you know, I'm more biblical now than I was before, but yet you're right. saying that, that um, I've lost, you know, my, yeah. my core well, of who I am. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. To make your point, I, I had a, um, I won't name names, but I had a key uh, religious leader tell me recently that he thought I'd left the gospel. <laughs> now, your listeners, of course, don't know me, and you don't know me that well, but the people close to me would tell you that I'm sort of legendarily patient, and I don't know why I am. But um, <laughs> So I patiently said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, it's your emphasis on the kingdom of God. And I, again, patiently said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, it's your emphasis on the kingdom that's making you put justice front and center. And I said, well, again, like, why is that a problem? And he said, well, you just need to know that many of us think that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, what he was trying to say to me is you're insisting on the justice of the kingdom coming. And I don't know what he meant, like in a way that God's not or something. But I need to say to your listeners that that text in John, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, it's not an exegetical controversy. 
it doesn't mean that my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. It means that my kingdom is not of this world. It's not derived from this world. It's derived from my father in heaven. And it's it, in that sense, it's not of this world. It doesn't mean it doesn't have anything to do with this world. Why else would Jesus have taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Or why would Jesus have said, when you see me drive out demons, this is you can know the finger of God, the kingdom of God is at work in your midst. So I guess what I would want to say to our listeners and to anybody who I could shout this from the housetops is just to put a little more precise point on what Kevin was saying. Once you start reading the biblical prophets, minor or major, you discover this word tzik for righteousness. And I think there's another one that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But when that word was translated into the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it was translated by a word dikaiosune which is usually translated righteousness in our English Bibles, but the word means justice. <laughs> and so um, justice is both personal in the sense of um, God's own righteousness coming to us as we repent, but it's also social as Kevin said. And I know if, as soon as you put the word social in front of justice, you know, if you're uh, sort of a, a right-wing Republican Christian, you know, people think of Bernie Sanders and AOC or you know, Nancy Pelosi or whatever, whoever the boogie person is of the day. But all justice is in the Bible. I would just wish every listener could get this. Justice is simply God's insistence, his patient, loving, wise, but powerful insistence that what he designed for creation will someday come to pass. Like someday men will no longer be able to rape women. That's justice. Someday small business owners will never have anybody burn down their business. That's God's justice that when his kingdom comes fully, just think of those beautiful passages in Revelation, no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. Like injustice is wiped away. How? through the insistence of God, not a bullying insistence, but a patient, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of a patient insistence, and finally through his son, and then Kevin, I'm sure you've said this before too, but I'll just speak for myself in case, but a part of what brings me to being a friend with you and joining you in your work is Jesus said, even as the Father sent me, so I send you. So I'm sent, the Bible says, as an ambassador of God's kingdom precisely. Now, I already said in the beginning, I love helping people come to faith. I just no longer put righteousness or justice. I no longer think of it in that narrow, merely personal way of helping people get to heaven when they die. I still want to do that. I still love it when somebody's converted to Christ. But I just know now that those words like, to Kaiosune, to Zeke, and other those biblical concepts are rich and big and um, broad. They're not just personal. Yeah, and it's my understanding. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but it's my understanding that in the Hebrew, there there is no word for individualism. Um, yeah, that, and then there's words for self or psyche and that kind of thing. Right. But the idea of faith as a private individual thing. Is, yes, uh, that would be foreign. It's that, not that, a totally concept, foreign. That it's all about the community. It's all about uh, what goes on in society. Yeah, so I, I like using the word social justice, and I really like using it mm -hmm. uh, to people who I know are going to respond negatively. Um, you know, that, I guess well, I'm not as patient. Who's the, sorry I'm to interrupt, a, but who's the, I don't know who the smart aleck was that said, 
Well, what other kind of justice is there besides social? <laughs> well, that's what I'm kind of getting. What I've told people, <laughs> yeah. they push back on me is like, well, you know, social justice is a trigger word. You should say biblical justice. And I'm like, yeah. well, biblical justice is redundant because if it's justice, it's biblical. And if it's biblical, it's justice. And so saying yeah. biblical justice is like saying justice, justice. That, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Because what, what we're talking yeah. about is social justice. We're talking about society. Right. We're talking about, you know, Jesus came to save the world and that includes individuals but it also you know includes systems and and um right. and oppression and and economics and 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 all those things um you yeah know, those are the so, biblical categories of principalities and powers and that's yeah sort of yeah so so you're talking about societal justice and so instead mm -hmm. of trying to change the word social justice we need to as as followers of jesus we need to redeem the word social justice and explain this is what yeah. we're talking about here um, what you said, and I like telling people that, you know, that the one of the best definitions of social justice is um, do unto others as you would have them do. Yes, unto you. absolutely. I mean, yeah. so that's that's a simple absolutely. definition mm -hmm. of what we're talking about. Um, and uh, and of course, you know, I, the kingdom of God. I mean, I, I, my understanding or my belief of the kingdom of God is that it's both now and not yet. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And so when Jesus came, he announced the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Uh, and so yep. the kingdom of God is here right now. Now it won't be fulfilled till yes. Christ comes again, but the kingdom right. of God is here right now. And so when we take care of the poor, when we stand up, for, uh, when we stand against injustice and fight against racism um, and fight for livable wages uh, and, mm -hmm. and all those things, those, those are snapshots of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom right. is, is going to look like when it's fulfilled. There will right. be no more poverty. There will be no more mass incarceration. There will yeah. be no more homelessness. Like you said, there will be no right. more rape. That's what right. it will look like when it's fulfilled. But in the meantime, yes, as followers of Jesus, we're to bring the kingdom into present day reality. Uh, and that's where the mm -hmm. hope comes in. That what you see now is a reflection of what's going to be, you know, but right. you don't wait till it comes. You, you, you start living that way now and bringing the kingdom of God with you. And, and that's evangelism. Uh, right that really is and that's what will attract people to the gospel um instead of um uh the the sales pitch that we use to get people to say a sinner's prayer uh, and then yeah. okay let's move on to the next person um and and as a result society doesn't doesn't change you know right we're to yeah you're right if we life. don't use the word social justice we end up having to use a big long phrase like um the goodness and righteousness of god coming into the spheres of every sphere sphere of human endeavor right and yeah. so the the one word for that is social i mean yeah. Yeah. the words social civic societal all those mean is the way human beings are together that's that's all they mean yeah so all we're really saying is how do we bring god's goodness his justice his love and wisdom to the ways in which human beings are together it's just that that's you know that's a whole sentence that gets summarized in one word justice if you want yeah. uh, sorry social if you understand yeah. that that's what and then meant. you know i, I think a, a, a key turning point or um the final hammer into the you know the final nail into the wood for me was really reading the book of acts the very beginning mm -hmm. of the book of acts i mean the first few verses um you know it, it talks about what jesus did between his resurrection and ascension so during that time period what did he the bible says that he taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. 
And yeah. so it only makes sense to me that if Jesus knew he only had this short period between resurrection and ascension, where yeah. he's got time with his disciples, what he's going to teach them is the single most important thing he could teach them. It's a great point, Kevin. You know, yeah, and great, it great says point. he taught them the kingdom of God. So he, he said he announced the kingdom at his baptism, you know, mm -hmm. and, and to me, every miracle and every uh, parable yes. all had that kingdom of God um, yes. as, as its context. And then mm -hmm. he's crucified, he's resurrected. And now he says, this is the most important thing I can teach you, the kingdom of God. And then he says, go into yeah. Jerusalem and, and, right. and then the, the church. And then will... to further make your point, you get to the end of Acts. And what does it say about Paul? He was proclaiming the kingdom of yeah. God. Yeah. It's, it's the <laughs> so it, it doesn't stop with Jesus. It, you know, it starts flooding out through yeah. the apostles. And so it shows you, and this is not, it shows you how far the evangelical church has gotten off course. When somebody comes to you and says, you've forgotten the gospel because you're emphasizing the kingdom too much. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, man, you cannot, you cannot emphasize <laughs> yeah. the kingdom enough. That is right. the, that is, that is the gospel, you know, and, mm -hmm. and within that, there is that personal conversion. We don't ever want to get away from that, that people have to place their faith in Christ. Uh, but, but that's just, that's not the entire gospel is, is is both the individual and society. The holiness of God um, is both uh, mercy and justice. It's both um, yeah. the individual and the community. Um, and, and and you got, you know, and so what's happened, I know what's happened in the United States. Your mainline denominations went too far this way. Your conservative denominations went too far this way. Right. And what we need mm -hmm. to do is come back together and say, it's not one or the other. It is both. It is yeah. both that we have to be um, constantly right. preaching. Well, as I said, when we started, the yeah. reason you're, you're a hero to me is um, like you're actually trying to do it. And I know you wouldn't say you're perfect at it. I, I know you wouldn't say that you have insight about everything. But seeing someone like you trying to work this out on the ground um, is, is so inspiring. Well, I didn't bring you on here to say that, but but thank you. <laughs> You know, thank welcome. you so much and we're going to, have to i went around uh, the the listeners won't know but i went around asking hey who in town is kind of thinking like i'm thinking trying to work this out and people kept saying to me you need to meet this kevin guy and <laughs> finally we ran into each other at lunch and i said hey is this that kevin guy is he in the room and a mutual friend said yeah he's right there go sit down next to him <laughs> so <laughs> i i know i'll always remember that moment of of meeting you it's been well fun. i think i think god brings people into your life for a purpose and so he and so we're yeah. together for a purpose um and uh, as i as iron sh sharpens iron you know we can sharpen each other because this is this is worth giving your life to um yeah it, it's not easy it's uh um you know you you get attacked um from uh mm -hmm. from all sides when you do this uh, but but it is it is worth giving your life to. And to me, it is what following Jesus is all about. So any closing remarks? Man, Man I can't top that. For <laughs> me, this is all about what following Jesus is all about. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way to end. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Um, all right. Thank you, Kevin. People need to go to your website. It's um, it's centerfjp.org. So Center for, for Justice and Peace, but just fjp at the end, .org. And I'll try to put that in the show notes at the end and, uh, and, and, and just check out what they're doing. Um, it's, a, it's a newer organization, but they got big plans and it is much needed. We need more people who 
um, are coming from the evangelical perspective who have this emphasis on the kingdom of God. I mean, we, we have got to, we have got to have that. And, uh, and I think really that's going to be the salvation of, um, of the evangelical church. And that may not be a good way to say it because the church doesn't need saving. I mean, the church is never going to die, but, yeah. but maybe it's the healing that the church needs mm. um, it, is going to come from this type of thing. So thank you so much. I appreciate everybody thank you, watching. Kevin. And uh, yeah, thanks to all your listeners. Well, let's get together again soon. All right. Thank you. Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. The Tennessee Holler provides relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at www.tnholler.com. Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.